0: Today's reading will be in 1 Timothy 2 8 through 15. I that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. The Word of the Lord. Well, thanks so much, Gretchen, for reading uh, our passage for today from 1 Timothy. Thanks so much, Jennifer McClish, uh, for uh, the testimony that she gave on video as we went into our time of preaching. Uh, my name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant, and I have the incredible honor to open God's Word for you today. I'm really excited about uh, what is going to happen today and, and what we're going to begin today today. If you have been with us a while, maybe you remember that about a year and a half ago, we did a sermon series on biblical manhood. What does the Bible have to say about just the essence of manhood, and how should we, as men, understand ourselves as men by the design of God? Uh, And at that time, we said we we want to do a a series on biblical uh, womanhood. The same kind of asking some of the same questions. It is an interesting time to be talking about gender and gender differences and God's design in those differences. Uh, People can even be saying, should we be asking these questions? Is is gender even a real thing or is it just some sort of a social construct? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Should we even be talking about these things right now? And uh, should a man be teaching on biblical womanhood? These are all really good Questions and uh, if there are questions that you've had before, I'm really glad that you're here. And there's a lot of Bible passages, including the passage that we just read in considering biblical womanhood that can be certainly controversial and you might even say explosive. <laughs> so, what we want to do over the next three weeks is we're gonna we're gonna do several things here. Uh, first, we're going to be looking at just this idea of biblical womanhood. Uh, how do we understand God's design for for women, uh, for those of you who are my sisters in Christ, what is God's design for you? Secondly, uh, we we want to be kind of looking at some of these hard passages. Uh, there, there's so many passages in the New Testament that are kind of written off or kind of ignored or maybe just totally misunderstood that actually the way that we want to look at biblical womanhood is through the lens of some of the most difficult and explosive passages of Scripture that we have in the New Testament. Uh, per the verse that Gretchen just read. The third thing we're going to be doing, I'm really excited about this. I I hope that you guys are reading along uh, with our Rhythms Guide. We have, you're not aware of this, we produce a daily Bible reading plan for our church. We want you to Uh, be in God's Word. We want the Word of God to be dwelling in you every single day. And so there's Scripture readings that go along with our sermon. We actually have in the back of the book another Bible reading plan that'll take you through the whole Bible in a year. But it's a great guide for prayer, for Scripture reading, for sermon notes. And in this, through the course of this series, we're going to be looking actually at three strong women that we can learn a lot from, that we see throughout um, the Scriptures. And then the last thing we're going to be doing is in our groups, we're going to be reading this great little book uh, that I've really enjoyed called The Accidental Feminist by Courtney Razig. And uh, it's a, it's going to go broader than I can go in these sermon series, in, in these sermons, uh, but it's really going to give us kind of a broad look, a biblical theology um, of biblical femininity. So I'm really excited about this. We've got a lot to do, we've got a lot going on. We only have three weeks, and today I've got a lot of work. Because this is a big passage of scripture. So again, if you have your Bibles, flip with me back over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, I know pastors that have actually preached through 1 Timothy that just kind of skip these verses. I mean, they're kind of strange. A woman should be remain quiet or what does it mean that a woman should be saved by childbearing? It's very easy to kind of write these things off as contextual. These are just things that Paul said because of the time, because of the place, because of what was going on in Ephesus. He had to kind of say these particular things. They're not necessarily truths that apply to us now. But of course, we don't understand uh, the Word of God that way. And actually, I think these things have a lot to say to us. These verses have a lot to say to us. About three things in particular that we're going to look at today. First of all, the nature of God. Secondly, the nature of men and women. And then thirdly, the hope of men and women or of women and men. So, let's begin. I want to look with you at the nature of God. Actually, we see a lot of God's nature in this passage. I was having lunch a couple of months ago with Jeff Ham, who's a pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian, just right down the road from the collective here. Great guy, wonderful pastor, and, and uh, he's doing a great job there at Christ Church, and he was looking for an executive pastor. And he said, you know, I'm trying to find an executive pastor. And I said, hey, man, I, I know who you should hire. You should hire this guy, Drew Jones. Drew and I grew up together. Uh, I was like, he's great. He's really organized. He's a Presbyterian. He went to Auburn, so he's obviously brilliant. And you can, this guy would be a great hire for you. And uh, Drew actually told me a couple of weeks ago, but they announced last week that that Drew Jones is going to be coming on as the executive pastor at Christ Church Pres. And I'm really excited uh, for Drew. You see, I, I I felt like, one of the reasons I was excited to maybe help Drew get a job is because I kind of always felt like I owed Drew. Uh, when I was in high school, my first day um, of chemistry, my sophomore year of high school, I walk in the class, and we had a really hard chemistry program there at Grissom, and the teacher starts teaching stoichiometry, if you remember that, kind of how you make all the Molecular equations work out, and I, I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea what's going on, and, and we were going to have difficult labs. And so there was this new kid that had just moved to Huntsville, and he looked really smart. I could tell that he kind of knew what he was doing. And I said, Hey, why don't you be my lab partner? Of course, it was, it was Drew Jones. So Drew was my lab partner, and he was incredibly helpful to me. And I ended up I went from being totally intimidated by chem- t- chemistry to really loving chemistry. and, and Drew and I both got an A in the class. Um, and and from that time to this, I, I've really just been fascinated uh, by science and how it works and and how everything in this universe, in the created or world, fits together. I talked a lot of, a bit about this a few weeks ago when we talked about science and Christianity. But what chemistry is, what really chemistry is, is, is the understanding that there are atoms in the universe. Atoms make up everything that we can see and even things that we can't see, like uh, the air. And if you understand the order of those atoms, if you understand the structure of how God has made the world, uh, you can really flourish in the world. So, for example, flight, okay? I- I'm still amazed. I've-, I've been on hundreds of airplanes, and I'm still amazed that we can fly. I mean, how, do- how can we do this? I-, I used to think that we were breaking the laws of the universe in flight, but of course, that's incorrect, an airplane doesn't fly because it's breaking the laws of the universe. An airplane flies because somebody figured out how the universe actually works. Somebody figured out that if you speed up the air going over the top of the wing, it will decrease the air pressure. And in the bottom of the wing, the, the air the air pressure will be higher, and thus it will create lift, and a plane will fly. You, you see, the the... the the way we've been able to flourish in terms of creating airplanes is actually by understanding the laws of the universe, by understanding how the universe works, how the universe is all put together. and and What I learned at Grissom High School when I was studying chemistry is that as you study the universe, as you look at the universe and understand how the universe all fits together, there is incredible order in the universe. And the reason that, as the, the more we study science, the more we can figure out how the universe works, the more we can discover that there's order built into the universe, the reason that all of this is true is because God is a God of order. God has created an incredibly Orderly world. It's not a world that we have to just guess at. It's it's a world that, if we rightly understand, it actually behaves in a very orderly way. Water, for example, always boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Right? You're not going to try to boil your water and you know it gets to 100 degrees and starts boiling on you. That just is not going to happen because why? There is a design about water. If you drop something, if you measure the speed of gravity at the at the Uh, on the surface of the earth, it's always 9.8 meters a second, right? Doesn't matter what you drop, the speed of gravity is consistent at the earth's surface. As Newton said, an object at rest, will stay at rest, an object at motion, will stay in motion unless they are acted upon by a force. There are all these rules. There is all this order that just exists in the universe, and the reason is—I want you to hear this. I'm going into this detail because I want you to hear this—the nature of God is order. God is a god of order. If you expect water to boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, if you expect water to freeze at 30 degrees 32 degrees Fahrenheit, then you are right to expect. If you see that kind of order in water, then you're also right to expect that there is an order in God's design for men and for women. There is an order in God's design for the family. And for His church, the nature of God is order. And in this passage, we see a couple of orderly things that God has put in place. There's a part of this actually, that speaks to God's ordering of the entire world and kind of how He has set up the order for all of His creation. Let me let me get to that with you. The most explosive part of the passage, obviously is verse 11 through 15. I'll just read it again. Um, Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit uh, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And here's kind of where it gets explosive. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what is this all about? Um, and, And here's what I think it is all about, and here's the best way to understand it. There, there was an order of design in the world that God created. God was creating all of these things to manifest himself, uh, and over all of creation, God put the man, the man Adam. He, he told the man to care for and cultivate and rule over the world. And what God gave to man, because man was not going to be able to do this alone, it was not good that man should be alone. Man was not going to be able to fill the earth. He wasn't going to be able to complete the tasks that God has given him. And so what he gave him, to be a one flesh union with him, to be united with him, to be his helper in all of his work, was a woman. They were to be joined, to be unified. The strife and division that we see between men and women, this was not God's design. But God, ruling over the man and the woman, was through them going to rule over all the things that he had made, all of his creation, all right? So you see this order here. God working through the man and the woman was to rule over all of God's creation. And actually, we see this kind of order playing out. It's, it's interesting. I've always thought it was interesting that God didn't give the command to the woman that they should not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He actually only gave that command to the man. This command was given before the woman was created. But then later, when the serpent comes to Eve and begins to tempt her, she knows the command, right? So Adam had done a good job up to this point of, of instructing his wife, of of giving her, teaching her what should be done. They're working together. There's order in the the world that God has made, and the world at that time flourished. But when sin enters the world, what happens? What do we see? You see the order being reversed. You see the creation. You see the serpent, the creature, not going to the man, not going to God, but going to the woman and, and challenging the woman. And then challenging the woman's understanding of the command that the man had given her, that God had given the man. And then, of course, the woman falls into sin. And Adam, of course, as we read in Scripture, is not protecting her, right? He's not showing this kind of relationship where he's looking after her. I mean, when a serpent comes into the garden, what should the man have done? He should have gotten his garden hoe and killed the serpent should have protected his wife he should have cared for her. he should have taken responsibility that God had given him to take but he doesn't do that he sits back he lets her lead he's passive and of course eventually as she takes the fruit he follows her lead and takes the fruit too and then ultimately in this sins against God you see see what happens here In God's design, there's there's actually an order, and this order leads to human flourishing. But when sin comes into the world, what is it? It is a disordering of God's creation, of God's plan. When sin comes into the world, it is a reversal of these things that God has set in place. And of course, this is where chaos begins. And this is what all sin is. We were designed to be honest to love truth. But what happens? We get fearful. We love ourselves more than we love truth, and we fall into dishonesty. Love and commitment were designed to be together before sex would come into a marriage situation, the commitment of marriage. But what happens? Lust takes over. We fall out of God's design, and whenever we fall out of God's design, there is chaos. There is disorder things that God has made to be good and to flourish, they are broken. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote that I've always liked. It says, The eternal law of God takes fearful vengeance where it is attacked and distorted. The eternal law of God takes fearful vengeance where it is attacked and and distort it, you see, God has what Bonhoeffer recognizes is God has an order, and when you mess with that order, when you attack that order, there there is always a vengeance about that, both in god 's final judgment, but we feel a vengeance about that by just living in a disorderly world. I recently separated my shoulder, I was uh, snowboarding actually, and i shouldn 't have been snowboarding, and I caught a front edge, and it was really icy. And I fell hard into the ice. Now, why did that happen? That happened because in God's order, there is a law, there is uh, part of his order called gravity, right? That, as I said before, is pulling objects down to earth at 9.8 meters a second. And as I was going down this hill very fast, I was being pulled down very quickly. Um, and then, of course, I fell down. I didn't fall. I fell into H2O, but it was frozen H2O. And again, we learn in the order of God's creation that when the molecules H2O go below 32 degrees, they come together. They're very compressed. It's not like liquid water, they create a hard surface. And I challenged God's order called gravity, I challenged God's order called the hard surface. Of frozen H2O, and I paid for that. It took vengeance on my shoulder. And again, this always happens with God's laws, his physical laws, but also his spiritual laws, also his laws for the design of the home, also his laws for design of gender. There's always a price to pay when we disorder these things, and there is order. And so, for example, what we see in Scripture over and over A second thing here is that that God has called men to lead in their homes. and Again, this is not because of their ability, right? This is something that's confused. God hasn't created things this way because men are necessarily more capable leaders than their husband. He's created things this way so that there would be not a rivalry, not a competition for leadership ability in the home, but no, just a, a set oneness that is, is created, is happening between the men and the women. There is a pattern that God has set in place. And, and when men are providers and protectors and spiritual leaders of their home, there is a flourishing about that. You know, there's There's been many interesting studies on parents and children and church attendance. I, I was actually looking at one just this week that I thought was fascinating. If both parents regularly go to church— uh, and this study's a, a little older, but I think it still is fascinating, its findings. If both parents regularly go to church, 74% of the children will either regularly, that being 33%, or irregularly, being 41%, uh, also attend church. So you would see the, the children kind of following the pattern of their parents. Now, here's what's interesting. If only the mother, if the father doesn't go to church, and if only the mother goes to church, only 2% of the children end up regularly going to church, and another 39% irregularly or somewhat. But I thought this was super fascinating. If only the father went, 44% would regularly continue to go to church. If the, if the father went and took his children, and, and again, about that same number would also irregularly go. What is this? What What is happening here? And, and what I'm saying is there's something designed, there's something in this design, there's something designed by God. God has called the men to be the spiritual leaders, to be the head of their home. And I just want to say this, men, so often we are prone to be passive. Men have to be encouraged to lead. Men have to be encouraged to go and take charge. Again, this is Adam's problem in the garden, right? He, he's sitting there watching the woman watching eve be tempted by the serpent and he's doing nothing about it he's he's sitting there just watching this happen he takes no initiative he he shows no leadership and of course this causes great problems it ultimately leads to sin but men of course are called to take the lead to be the leaders of their home to not be passive. This is God's design and God's order. And, and I just want to say this. Most of even the most progressive women I know, women that are incredibly brilliant, successful, they're out there ruling the world, they, they still desire, even if they have no sort of biblical worldview framework, they still desire their husbands to not be passive, but to be active, to take the lead, to lead them, to care for them, to protect them. They, they deep down desire their husband to to lead. They don't want a passive husband. And in the same way, as God has called men to lead in their homes, He's called them to lead in the church. These are two incredibly important in institutions, obviously, for our Lord. They're institutions that God has created. And, and we see it, there's a lot of similarities between the home and the church. All throughout Scripture, there's a lot of analogies, a lot of metaphors given for the church, and a lot of them have to do with some sort of household, some sort of family of faith. We we, we see a reference to brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, I have been your father. There is this idea that the church is kind of like a big family. And we certainly would desire that here at Christ's Covenant, that we would be a family that loves one another, that are covenanted to one another. And just as, as God has called every member of the family to importance and to value and to a beautiful part of that organization or, or of that unit, just as, but God has called men to lead in the family. And just in the same way, he's called them to lead in the church, in this church family. So, what is Paul commanding here in this passage? What is he saying when he says women are to stay silent? Well, you need to understand what's going on in this passage. It's it's important. We talked last week uh, in our talk back about, of course, we talked last week in last week's sermon about the Bible. And in the talk back, we, we went through this idea of canon. What is the canon of Scripture? And Blake did a great job defining that, that. This this idea, this word canon, comes from the idea of a measuring rod or a measuring stick. It, it's how you weigh what is true and right and good. When something is spoken in the church, when something is said in the church, it must be measured against the canon. Uh, and so at this time, when someone would preach, there was some uncertainty as to, you know, the church was still, again, the canon was still being written. New Testament books were still being put together. And so people in the church, particularly men in the church, would measure what was being preached, what was being said in the church. They would, from parts of the Bible that they knew, they would measure what had just been taught. And and oftentimes in in this first century setting, this was actually happening in the service. Now, of course, we still do this today uh, at Christ's Covenant. We have a plurality of elders. And if I were to say something that uh, was not biblical if I were to say something that was out of line with the scriptures, we we are counting on these overseers, these leaders to speak up, to speak out uh, against me, to correct the congregation or myself or any other preacher were to say something that wasn't in line with God's word. we would that would need to be corrected. And God has given us great men, great male leaders to help us to do this, to to measure everything that we say up against the measuring stick of God's word. And I just want to say this, in churches where you often find theological error, it's where this is not happening, where there aren't a council of men that are able to speak against or to, or to encourage God's truth, speak against error or to encourage God's truth. And what we're seeing here in this passage, what's being encouraged, is that the men would be the one to speak up. They would be the one to speak out. It's not that women don't have a role in the church. No, not at all. And women are an incredibly important part of the church with, with many gifts that are called to be used in many ways. But this role, this role of overseer, this role of teacher and pastor and, and shepherd, this is a role that God is encouraging the men to take hold of. Scripture teaches that it's reserved for Men, again, just as men are called to lead in this way, to, to kind of, if you will, be the measuring rod of their homes, they're also called to be the measuring rod in the church. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 14, the same kind of uh, encouragement given uh, for teaching and leading in the church. And in this passage, again, the, the women aren't called to be unengaged, but they're actually called to stay silent during the public gathering but encourage their husbands to do this to speak out to speak god's word so what is happening here i hope you see what's happening here the church and the home they're so precious to the lord god has a design for these institutions and what he so desires in these institutions is that men and women husbands and wives would not be working against one another they would not be rivaled against one another but they would be united one another. There would be a one fleshness in the home as these things are approached. There would, would be a unity in the church. And again, in no way is this speaking against women's strengths or talents or any such things. In fact, there are many women that are more gifted Bible teachers than many men, and I'm including myself in this. Now, they have better leadership instincts than a lot of men. Again, I'm including myself in this. And again, God desires to use those women, but there is just a way, there is an order in terms of how those gifts are to be exercised and how they are to be used. And I believe what shows true strength and true beauty is when women with those gifts, desiring those gifts, uh, can use them within this order that God has designed for His church. You know, this is definitely what I'm explaining here. This is definitely the pattern of the New Testament, and, and when, when you see this, when churches follow this, I believe that men who are prone to passivity, oftentimes prone to passivity, especially in the face of a woman that does not want to submit to them, that does not want to let them lead, when you see this, when you see a church that is pushing men, men and women both are pushing the other men to lead and to take charge and to teach, I believe what you will see is, is no shortfall of godly men equipped to lead. But where you see this challenged, where you see this questioned, where you see people doubting this and not respecting God's order here, I think you so often see, in fact, I, I, you see this over and over again, churches that cannot find men that are willing to lead, that won't stand up, that, that, are, that aren't engaged. Not that there's no men that are willing to lead in those contexts, but so often I hear the testimony that there is just a great shortfall. Now, Again, I, I want to be clear I believe that this design for the church and for the home are specific to the church and to the home. This does not, of course, mean that women cannot work outside the home. Of course, we, we see that all over the Scripture. We see women leading in organizations. We see them um, having big jobs outside the home. Uh, and, and in so many ways, that is commendable and honorable uh, throughout the Bible. And so, again, I, I just want to say that this is this is a specific design for these two institutions that God has put so much thought into because they're reflective of him in so many ways. These are in, this is a design that God has given to the church and to the home. and, and What shows, I think, so much strength uh, among women is when they can go out and, and have big jobs and big companies and yet come home and still honor their husband as the leader of that household. You see, all of this is happening because God is a God of order. The nature of God is order, and just as we would expect him to have ordered the water and to have ordered the sky and to have ordered everything in creation, we should expect him to have order for his church. But the second thing I want to look at here is the nature of men and women. Now, again, I hope particularly to my sisters in Christ, as you're listening to this, you're encouraged by this, that God is a God of design, that there is there is good to this, that God is, uh, that this design is good, it's right, it's actually reflective of God's character and how God is, that we see in the Godhead a certain order between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Again, I, I believe that in terms of strength and ability, it often takes more strength to honor your husband and to submit to him than it would to challenge him. But of course, this is incredibly hard. This is a hard command. And and it's not in any of our nature to honor the commands of the Lord that, that seem to restrict us, that, that seem to hold us back. Um, God in his word has such a high view of this one flesh union. And and I believe in a world without sin, it works great. In the Trinity, the, the Son and the Spirit are pleased to submit to the Father because there's no sin in the Godhead. But in a world of sin, where a world where power is abused, these things are incredibly hard and sticky and straining. And again, as I said before, in no way, Uh, For my sisters in Christ, does this speak to your value or your essence? Men and women are both equal in essence, made in the image of God. In many ways, in many cases, women are more talented. They have greater helper. And yet God's design, by God's design, women are called to be the helper, to submit to their husband. Again, not based on talent or character, but this is the design of God for a oneness in this unit. And again, as you hear these things, it's very easy to say, why can't I be the head? Why can't I be in charge? And again, this is natural. This is the nature of men and women to challenge God's order and to challenge God's law. You know, I mentioned before that God told Adam to be the head of his wife. God told Adam to protect his wife. And of course, during this moment of sin that I was explaining earlier— Adam just sat there. He was passive. He watched his wife. He watched this serpent tempt his wife and lead her into sin, and he did nothing. And you can almost imagine Eve thinking after sin, how can I ever trust him again? How can I ever trust Adam again? He's totally failed me. How can I trust a man like this? And it's almost as if God knew that she was thinking this. It's almost as if she was thinking this, and God knew she was thinking this, because in Genesis 3.16, we read this very interesting passage. Where God says to the woman, your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And the words here, this is where a little knowledge of the Hebrew is incredibly interesting. Before sin, Adam was, call, was called to rule over creation, but he was called to abod and to shamar creation, to cultivate creation and to protect and to care for creation but in this passage this idea of rule over so you hear the you hear the words there abad cultivate shamar care for but here this passage when it says rule over it's not abad or shamar it's mashal this is a military word it's a word of strife uh, there, there was supposed to be a partnership there was supposed to be this mutual caring there was supposed to be this unity but now after sin mashal division and of course this breeds a number of issues between men and women. It's Men are prone to abuse power in a relationship. Men, women are prone to buck the rule of their husband. People are prone to strife between each other or withdraw from one another. This is not God's good design. Godly men, godly women, There's they're supposed to follow this design of of headship and helpmate. Women are called to be a supporter of their husbands. And of course, this this same pattern is reflected in the church, that that women would desire their husbands and desire other men in the church to be leaders, and and they would desire to be helpers in this godly pursuit of holiness and glory. Again, we see this in this passage. Go, Go back to 1 Timothy 2 with me, verse 8. It says, I desire that in every place, look at this, this is fascinating. As I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Again, this shows some of our tendencies here. Men... Are kind of prone to this quarreling, this strife, right? Don't mess with me. How do men show their authority? They win arguments, they quarrel, they show their strength. But what does it say here? That's not how men show that they're strong. Men should show that they're strong through prayer, through pursuing the Lord, through showing themselves as spiritual leaders. And there's so much we could say here, but we've got to move on. Again, women, how are they prone to get attention? How are they prone to be noticed? They're prone to be noticed, as it says here, through through noticeable apparel, through the braiding of their hair, through gold and pearls, through through being sexy, through wearing clothes that that that, that show them off to, to through jewelry and nice things. This is how you're going to show yourself. This is how you're going to gain authority and gain power. And, and and of course, what is Paul saying here? Is that, no, that's not, that's not how a woman is a woman is supposed to gain power. That's not how she's supposed to be noticed. She's supposed to be noticed through godly character, through godliness, through good works. And, of course, there's a, there's a certain humility in this. It takes an enormous amount of strength and courage to follow God's order here. These are hard commands. But I just want to say this before we move on to the next point. It's so often the hard commands, the commands that are kind of hard to hear, that prove that there actually is a God. Tim Keller once said, "If, if uh, only if your God, only if your God, can outrage you, and make you struggle, will you know that you worship the real God, and not a figment of your imagination? You see, it, it's these kinds of times when we're challenged by God's word, when we're challenged by God's voice, that we actually know that God is." Probably a real person. It's not just it's not just some idol that we've created. It's not just something that always agrees with us. It's the parts of God that are hard to agree with. That that's, those are some of the parts that of God that are the most real. We've talked about the nature of God. We've talked about the nature of women and men. But lastly, I want to look with you at the hope of women and men. Now, verse 15 here, again, a strange verse, a hard verse, but it's actually a really beautiful verse when you understand it. Let me read it again for you. It says, She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, again, if you don't understand what's going on here, you could say, what is this saying? That that, that women can only be saved? That women can only be made righteous by having children? Now, that's, that's not what's being said here at all. There's actually a clue you can understand here. And there's a few things that we need to consider in this passage. But the first thing we see in this passage is the hope of salvation. And and there's a clue to see this. If you'll notice, anytime you see this in Scripture, you should pay attention, that we see this changes from singular. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue, right? She to they. There's something to this. When Adam and Eve had fallen into sin in the garden... Uh, everything had gone wrong with the world. God was literally cursing them. In the midst of that, in Genesis 3.15, he gave them this ray of light, this ray of hope, that one day the woman would have an offspring, and that offspring would crush the head of the serpent. That offspring would undo this great evil that the serpent had done. And that was an incredible hope for them, that, that one day an offspring would come. And of course, that's exactly how salvation did come. How did God choose to save us? He didn't just ascend or descend down from the sky. No, he he came to us how? Through the womb of a woman, through the offspring of a woman. I wanted you to see and be encouraged by this, sisters in Christ. It, it, was, it was actually this, this woman, Eve, and all the women that would follow her that carried the hope of salvation for the whole world. How would God choose to save the world through the womb of a woman? You'll be saved through childbearing. God was bringing about salvation through childbearing. Of course, this is fulfilled in Jesus at his birth, but it's also fulfilled, and I want you to hear this, it's also fulfilled as those who continue in faith and in love and in holiness with self-control, as those of you who are in Christ continue in these things, As you bring children into the world, and as you raise them up to follow Christ, to be a Christian, a little Christ, you're actually bringing about a salvation. You are bringing about a hope here. And so the second little hope that we see in this passage is the actual hope of children. There is great hope in having children. When a Christian family has a child, we should see in that child hope that the prayerfully and hopefully through that child, darkness will be pushed back. The kingdom will go forward. Godliness will be known. It it is right, if you're a married couple, it is right for you to desire children and to have children and to raise them up in the way of the Lord. We need Christian people to be having children. There's an incredible hope in this to undo the curse. Now, there was a time when you talked about the curse of childbearing or the pain of childbearing that we see in Genesis 3. And I think most of our thoughts probably went to the actual pain of having a baby. This was before epidural. This was before a lot of the medication that we have today. And, and that process was incredibly scary. It was frightening. P- people could die in the process. And, of course, praise be to God that we, we have so many medical advances. That That is still a painful process. It's still a difficult process. I'm not taking anything away from you ladies at all but it is a it is an, as a, it is a less painful process than it has been but now we live in a time where the real pain of childbearing comes in bearing and in raising the children you know we, we live in this world that we're so individualistic there's kind of a message that children can actually kind of be a nuisance. They take away our freedom. They restrict us in so many ways. You know, to 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 those of you ladies that have decided to stay at home with your children, that's that's so great. That's so wonderful. But you can feel shame in that, right? People say you shouldn't do that. You're not living out what you've decided. You know, you're you're not fulfilling yourself. Or for those of you women that are working in the workforce, there's some. There's some, there's some baggage with having children there. You know, you know, uh, nobody would say this, of course, out loud, but you know that people in your company are saying, well, can we really promote her? She's got these kids. She may get pregnant. You know that's being said. There, there is something about this. There is a pain with this that you're forced to carry around. But but I just want to encourage my sisters in Christ. You know, there's a lot of roles that you're incredibly uh, and uniquely maybe gifted for, but there's there's one role that you're that, you're, that you and you alone are uniquely gifted for. And that is obviously to raise your children. Look, we live in a world where this can be a burden, but I just want to encourage you in this. This is such a, this is such a gift that God has given you, and there's so much kingdom value in raising up your children to love the Lord. Don't forsake this. There is a cost, right? There's going to be a cost with this. There's, there's going to be a cost to having children because you just can't do everything. But don't neglect this responsibility. Again, it's certainly okay for a, a woman to go and have a career outside the home, but that career in some ways will be limited by having children. But don't forsake this responsibility. This is such a, it's a hope. It's a hope that God would actually be undoing the curse in godly children that Christian parents can raise up to love him and to follow him. Now, you may be listening to this and you may say, well, you know what, look, I'm I'm single. Or maybe you've been trying to have children. You just can't. That's one of the amazing things about Christianity though, is there is this category in the Christian life, as as great of a good as, as having children are, there's this amazing category in the Christian life of spiritual children. You know, it's interesting that the the very first passage after the famous Isaiah 53 passage, this passage that talks about the suffering servant that would come into the world and that would bring about salvation through his stripes, by his transgressions we are healed. The the very next passage, that's Isaiah 53, the very next passage in Isaiah 54, 1 says this. Hear these words. "'Sing, O barren one who did not bear.'" break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And we come to our third little hope here, the hope of salvation, the hope of children, and the hope of spiritual children. You know, having children is an incredible gift, but if you can't have children, what does this say? It says, "Blessed are you, the children of the desolate one, could be more than the children of the one who is married." So I just I just want to urge you if you're single or if you can't have children or maybe you you know, you're beyond marriage age or childbearing age and you're just, you know, you're hearing this and there's an emptiness in your heart. That that is totally understandable. It's 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 right. There there should be a desire that we have to have children, but but hear this, God has given you an opportunity to raise up spiritual children and even more spiritual children than if you would have had children. So give yourself to your other sisters in Christ. Give yourself to raising up the next generation of spiritual children. There's so much salvation in childbearing, in salvation, in physical children, but also in our spiritual children. And look, I I just want to say as I conclude what we're calling this series Hope, there's so much hope in all of this. You know, as a woman and as a man, You know, this this world for you always has a message of hope. It says, look, hope in me, a career. This career will make you somebody. It'll give you a name. It'll give you a lot of money. You know, for a lot of the women, uh, you'll say, hey, hope in marriage and family. You know, have... Get married to a great man. Have a bunch of great kids. You'll be somebody if you can do this. Be involved. Make a name for yourself. Hope in this, hope in that. But as Jennifer said at the beginning of our time together, and I love what she said, there's only one lasting hope. There's only one hope that will really sustain you. There's only one hope that will really give you peace no matter what storm you go through. And that is, of course, the hope of knowing God through Jesus And when you begin to know God through Jesus, when you get to see God through Jesus, you'll, you'll find yourself, rather than questioning his order, rather than defying his order, starting to love his order, starting to realize that his law and his order, these things are actually for your good. They're for your flourishing. They're so that you can delight in his creation. Let's look to God in Christ and the light in the order that he has set forth. Let's pray. Father, I pray now for my sisters in Christ. I'm so grateful for them. So grateful that you've given our church so many strong and wise and talented women that I know desire uh, to follow your order, to follow your design in every way. Father, I thank you for... So many godly men in our church, I pray that that they would not be passive, they would not be prone to passivity, but they would lead in godliness and love with all humility. We would not find our strength in our outward appearance, Father, but we would find our strength in the holiness of a pure heart. Father, I pray that we would be good parents, both physical parents to the amazing children that you've given us, but also that we'd be good spiritual parents, that we would not neglect this enormous responsibility you've placed on us of disciple-making, of raising up people in the name of Christ, in the way of our Lord. We would see generations behind us that would love and treasure Christ. And so, Lord, um, I, I pray all of these things for our church, for anybody else that's watching May we love your order. May we delight, Father, in the things that you have set forth. And, and I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus as he loved your order, as he loved your way. And we would look to him and as we do, uh, that we'd fall deeper in love in the things that you have made. And we would trust you, Lord. And I pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, hey, as we close, we're going to sing a few songs in, in response. But I, I just want to encourage you. This is, you know, this is a tough passage. It's a tough series. There may be some questions that you have. Uh, there may be some of you that God actually kind of moved in your heart in a particular way today, and maybe you saw something in Him that you've never seen before. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to pray with you. You know, maybe uh, you're in a situation right now. You're 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 a woman in Christ, and. You're just kind of confused as to how you should rightly be serving or what you should be doing. These are the, all, all the kinds of things that we'd love to be able to engage with you. There's no way I can, in this sermon, answer every question that's out there about these thick topics like this. And so that's why I really encourage you to, to respond to us. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can text a pastor. You can use our text to pastor. You can use this anytime, 678-951-9041. I encourage you to save it in your phone. Anytime you just come up with something troubling or challenging, um, text me. Let me know. Uh, you can also uh, fill out a connect card. There's a place there where you can write down a prayer request or a question. We'd love to connect with you. That's below the YouTube link. that you're. Or the, there's a link below the YouTube channel that you're watching. Or finally, after the service, you can meet me in the lounge. Um, we have a little virtual lounge. There's also a link there. I'd love to be able to connect with you. Uh, but as we worship, I just want to invite you to respond, to respond however the Lord Uh, leads, but let's all respond now as we sing.